happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for September the 9th, 2021, episode 230. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am so thankful to be coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we had a week off, and then a delay, and then a little delay tonight, and hey, we're here. So joining me as always, sporting the Montana flag, and I must say, a very noble mane of hair tonight. <laughs> Dr. Jason Neifer, how are you, Jason? Uh, I'm good, Dr. Fryer. Um, I, I'll, I'll let my mom know, who is just <laughs> really not a fan of the long walks I have, that it, it's noble hair That's that right. I'm That's right. sporting during this time. So, um, yes, I'm Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in kind of smoky-ish Missoula, Montana. Uh, not a lot of close fires to Missoula tonight, but we're getting all of the West Coast smoke and Idaho smoke is is coming here. So, in fact, today and yesterday it was pretty hazy here. But um, uh, otherwise, uh, weather is starting to cool down, although it was mid-upper 80s today, which is not you know totally unusual for September, but... We're looking forward to having some rain soon. And in fact, I was just going to look because I've not yet today. Yeah, uh, tomorrow night, Saturday, Sunday, it's going to rain here. So we're pretty excited about that. But I don't think we're talking about the weather tonight. I think this is the EdTech Situation Room. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, usually, both of us, and I'm just going to say I'm the slacker tonight, but I'll be getting some in, uh, put some articles, in, uh, links to articles into a massive Google Doc, which is, prob- you know, let's find out what the Guinness Book of World Records for, you know, longest link document is. That's, yeah, I don't know, we're, what, 80 pages or something? I don't know. Yeah. But it's getting crazy. But we like to read tech news, and we like to think about how that... News may impact schools and teachers and students, and sometimes we also want to talk about other kinds of issues uh, impacting our communities as well as us as individuals. So tonight's categories, and if you'd like to check out this document, you can always find it at edtechsr.com slash links. The categories tonight are Google, Microsoft, connectivity, hardware, software, security-ish, and then we'll finish off with our Geeks of the Week. And as I said, I... Um, was a bit of a slacker, and I uh, will be putting in some more articles. So who knows? We may even have some new categories. But my with my slackishness tonight, Jason, I'm going to defer to you to pick our first topic of the evening. What would you like sure, to start sounds with? sounds good. And I just want to note for the record that we're on the verge of 300 pages now in this Google Docs. So what? it is a <laughs> massive, massive-sized undertaking. Um, in fact, I just added, this has been around so long, it's got the old-style table of contents. Um, <laughs> so I just updated to, to the newer one. So, yeah, let me share a couple of, of kind of techie, techie articles on... Obviously, lots interesting going on uh, right now uh, uh, in the ed tech world. You know, it's the start of a new school year. Uh, and as COVID continues to become uh, a, a continued thorn in our side, uh, really around the United States, uh, ed tech is at the forefront of a lot of the discussions about how we continue to maintain an educational atmosphere. But uh, let me start off with some uh, some Microsoft news. Uh, the first one is, this is from from uh, Therop.com, Paul Therop's website, August 24th, that Microsoft is bringing an interesting tool uh, to Teams. It's called Read, a Reading Progress. And it's part of Microsoft's really interesting strategy, um, you know, to keep plugging in very educationally driven tool sets into the team's architecture. And one of the things that's really interesting to me that's that in my mind is a differential between uh, the Microsoft product and the Google alternative product is that the Google alternative product um, is, is much more simplistic than the Microsoft product. And although it does have classroom, which is it's uh, kind of class uh, uh, focused tool um, they don't have a ton of, of tools native in the Google suite that are very specific to education. They don't have any um, uh, broader uh, implication to, to users otherwise, where Microsoft seems pretty bent on adding things that, that have immediate um, uh, immediate application. So um, uh, the uh, 
again, the software is called Read Reading Progress, and it's a free tool designed to support educators in creating personalized reading experiences that help with literacy acquisition. So teaching kids how to read and become more fluent um, in their literacy. And it is a localized app. It's in over 100 languages, which I think is also interesting as well. But the reason why I, I, I mention this is because I do think that's a huge differential between the mega, or mega or <laughs> the different uh, architectures uh, right now in that, uh, you know, it does seem Microsoft is very focused on bringing uh, you know, education tools that were built as education tools as opposed to maybe just collaboration and business tools that have a good e educational application. And so um, I've seen a lot of good reviews so far on um, reading progress uh, as a tool. I've seen also a lot of folks that are you know, kind of the Microsoft education peoples on Twitter talk uh, about how this would be a very um, uh, uh, useful tool in a lot of classrooms and cheers to Microsoft for heading in that direction. Absolutely. You know, it's pretty fascinating to think about how how far we've come from the Microsoft-dominated days of school, along with Novell and other kinds of things, how many schools are invested in, in Google, um, how vital that's all become and continuing to be, you know, during the pandemic. Um, so is this a tool that you're going to have to have 365 accounts for folks to, to utilize, or is this something that, that people will, will be able to use without that? I believe you have to have 365 accounts to yeah. use it. And, you know, and that, that, and this same is true of, of something that's inside the Google architecture too. But, you know, one of the things that has been a bit of a, um, uh, I think a sticky wicket in the, in the world where we seem to be kind of being in one or two, one of, one of two different architectures, either the Google world or the Microsoft world. Um, I, my program has been bit a couple of times over in the last six months, for example, um, in some of the, the security procedures they've built into the Google workspace for schools and education product, because it's really meant to be siloed inside of a school district for security purposes. But, um, you know, there still are plenty of, of tools available on both sides that, that are available on the other side as well, but it is becoming kind of a siloed world where, you know, a lot of education, uh, or I'm sorry, a lot of development efforts are going into developing tools uh, for educational purposes that you have to have one or the other architecture to do. And the one piece of advice I give in part because I've not seen a single district pull it off in a non-clunky way, you can have both, right? You can have both a Google world and you can have a, a Microsoft world. I think it's really hard to, to pull that off. And, and it in fact leads to confusion. Um, that I've worked with a handful of districts that, for example, you had two email addresses and, you know, theoretically it's the email address that you share, right? That's the one that gets used. But I've had instances where I know of people that were only checking the one because that's the email address they share. And then one day they happen to log into the other side of the, the system and find out they've have, you know, dozens or hundreds of emails they technically missed. So, um, yeah, I think that's a real problem. Two thoughts on that. Uh, more public schools, which is just south of us and maybe most famous for the more tornadoes, which tend to hit every decade or something. Um, they're very unique in the schools that I've, you know, been familiar with and work with in offering campuses the option of either being a Microsoft or being a Google campus. Now I haven't visited with their tech director in about a year, um, but that was, that was how he was, was rolling, which is pretty interesting. Uh, we are, you know, con we continue to have some users that are very invested in the Microsoft ecosystem. Our debate team is an example with all the macros and things like that. They just yep. have to have word. You, you cannot, you know, just use Google docs. Uh, and then, you know, some of our business office folks and, on the the education on the student side it's minecraft uh and, and i have actually just this week we've announced clubs we've got 53 you know fifth and sixth graders signed up for minecraft club i've got to see if i can scare up some other people to help me herd these kids but you know you've got to have a microsoft account to do that uh we still don't have our synchronized so yeah it it is interesting i mean we create those student accounts without a three a uh office you know, package, which Microsoft discourages, you know, they want you to be, want you to be using office, but anyway, it, it, it is interesting. And there are some different applications, which are standalone and don't require that full integration. But, you know, in addition to seeing the siloed world that we're in, we're also seeing that monetizing uh, world, which is happening increasingly with Google. So 
um, I've actually dropped a couple articles in, and I have one that kind of ties to that a little bit as a productivity um, article. Um, I guess I should have dropped the, your first one in there, Jason, and I didn't. We're Usually we're dropping these in on chat, so uh, I'll have to go back and get that one. This, oh, So these will be out of order, but I'm going to drop this one in, and I'll go back and get yours. Uh, this one is a new app called Cursive that Google has. Uh, it's a note-taking app, and originally it just came out for the HP Chromebook X211, but now it can be used on uh, any Chromebook. And so you can just go to the website uh, cursive.apps.chrome slash notebook. And then it says you click the download link. I'll be curious. It's That's not a Play Store app. <clears throat> and so um, I think that's, yeah, it's a progressive web app, a PWA. We've talked about those before. And I'm honestly really eager to try this. We've got new Dell, I think they're 3120. Chromebooks for students and all, all our teachers have one, which is great because, you know, if this one goes down for a student or something like that, or you just need to see how um, something is going to be working in their Chromebook environment. And we've got these, you know, styluses, which are not the Apple Pencil, but they're the best Chromebook stylus I've used to date. And so I'm really uh, excited about this. Um, I'm more excited on a sketch noting level. So I yeah. personally tend to keyboard my notes, uh, but we have a ton, ton, ton of students, you know, still taking handwritten notes. And so the opportunity to be able to grab a stylus and, you know, use your Chromebook. Um, I'm, I'm super excited that this year, you know, all of our fifth through eighth graders have the same Chromebook and it's new and they have a stylus. We have not really do dove deeply into the stylus on the Chromebook world yet to my knowledge. So I am excited about this app. Jason, have you dabbled with cursive by Google and do you have any other favorite Chromebook uh, stylus apps that you would. So I, I've not dabbled with cursive yet. It's on my, my list for when things die down after the start of the program. And in fact, I've got a, a longer tech list that I'll be doing in a couple of weeks when things get a, a little more sane at work, but I have read reviews and seen some demos and it looks very, very impressive. One of the things that has been a challenge for me um and only recently when I did uh, buy a more modern iPad, uh, it was an iPad Air 3, and then I ended up picking up a used Apple Pencil that uh, uh, did, that, that uh, worked there really well, that I, I've never really had a stylus be very effective for me. And I'm, I'm a handwriting guy. Like, my handwriting's terrible. I want to make sure that uh, I'm clear about that. But I, I like notebooks, uh, like physical notebooks, and I am a bit of a pen snob, and... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I've ever, uh, um, you know, pulled out my, just my desk pen collection, you know, that to, you know, show off, you know, of, of, of the pens that I like to use, uh, on, on a fairly regular basis. Um, you know, ways, uh, the many ways that Jason Neifer is a nerd, but, um, wow, folks, if you did not, if you're not watching this, you know, head on back to 1258 or 1250 <laughs> on the video, you're going to want to see that. Holy yeah. cow. And, you know, and I, I've always loved a good pen, um, and I would start just pulling out other bundles of pens in this drawer here, but uh, I, I risk extra mocking. But the point being is that I love a good pen, right? And I've just never really found um, uh, the hardware that works well enough uh, to, make, to make software uh, viable for me in that space. But the Apple Pencil is pretty close because it is a very nice platform, and the new USI styluses on Chromebooks uh, is, are also... Uh, the best I've seen yet in regards to that. So yeah, I plan on checking out Cursive and I'm a huge sketchnoting fan. I just think there's a lot of interesting pedagogy in that. It feeds a lot into the uh, interesting brain research, which I think does get tossed around in sometimes useful and sometimes not useful ways about how inking things, not, you know, just paper ink, but also digital ink and drawing out things and creating representations is actually a very interesting brain function exercise, which can help increase a uh, working memory um, of, 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 of items. And uh, to quote uh, cognitive scientist Daniel Willingham, um, memory is the residue of thought. And so when you can engage in content in ways like sketchnoting, it can be a very powerful uh, uh, learning process inside your classroom. And I guess this may be an opportune time to mention this because I may have the opportunity, hopefully will, to engage in some academic research. And that would that's a topic I would love to dive into. Um, I did make it public this last week that I am throwing my hat into the ring for some 
uh, assistant professor positions in some different places. Elon University in North Carolina was the first one that I've applied for. Um, I'm not a perfect fit for a typical literacy position in a college of ed that's going to be just focused on traditional literacy and reading, but uh, an institution that's going to be more broadly focused and allow for focus on media literacy is going to be a good fit for me. And so anyway, yeah, that that kind of uh, of research. And I can also just tell you anecdotally, personally, that when I decide to engage in sketchnoting for a keynote at a conference or, you know, some some kind of presentation that I'm hearing, um, you know, I, I really have to make sure I'm ready to work because it is so much easier to sit there and passively listen than it is to actively engage, capture the thoughts. And I think of it, uh, I'll be doing a sketch noting lesson or unit actually with my students here in, you know, in a few weeks before Thanksgiving and, and having those ideas come in your ears and through your eyes and into your brain. And they may literally have to go down your hand, you know, and, and out your fingers. And it's different when you're when you're just copying, you know, text and things like that from a slide. It's different than making the conversion non-linguistically to, you know, images and icons. And then you're also synthesizing because you're having to think about what the key ideas are. How do I represent those? You still have text. But anyway, it is fantastic. And shout out to Sylvia Duckworth. If you're not familiar with her work, I was just talking to one of our English uh, teachers actually in the high school who is teaching a drawing class this year. And I said, Hey, have you played with sketchnoting? And I just sent him some links today, including a link to Sylvia's great sketchnoting for beginners. She's written a book. So yes, excellent, excellent stuff. Well, let me do one more quick windows article in part because it has to do with a project that I'm working on. Um, I will admit that it's, it's actually a little unlike me to not have done this yet, but um, I have not installed Windows 11 anywhere yet, and that's actually unusual for me um, to not always experiment in, experiment in something like that. And it's only because I, you know, my work life has been pretty intense, and uh, uh, you know, spending eight nine hours a day working on tech means that when you get home at night, the last thing you don't want to do is touch a keyboard. But um, I, I, something happened in the last two weeks. Um, uh, uh, my boss's laptop, uh, had a hardware error and we had to wait for, um, uh, uh, for Dell to come replace the, the motherboard on the laptop. So we had to dig out, um, his, his last laptop, uh, temporarily to do that. And so, uh, uh Dell provided very efficient service. And so now, uh, his older laptop is, is in my hands again, and it had been sitting in kind of in a, in a, in a box in, in our IT room. Uh, for some time. So this is a, uh, 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 I think so this is a six year old, maybe a five year old Dell XPS 13. So if you're aware of the, the, the platform, it's a, a kind of a MacBook esque, uh, uh, attempt by Dell to, to kind of get into that space. Pretty good stuff, actually, uh, from a form factor standpoint. But I am going to try to install, um, Windows 11 on it and see if this laptop, which is, you know, these are not cheap laptops. They're not, uh, mass produced laptops, they are intended for power users. Whether this, uh, you know, five, six year old laptop will run Windows 11. But the biggest controversy, uh, in my mind over Windows 11, and I think this is particularly applicable to schools, is the fact that Windows, uh, uh, 10 machines won't guaranteed run Windows 11. And in fact, there are, uh, hardware restrictions. And it's not just the age of the hardware, it's the ability of the, um, uh, the machine to run a relatively modern security feature in the BIOS, right? So that's the software that runs the hardware on your computer. And it is uh, interesting because a lot of people are pretty, well, I would say understandably miffed at the fact that Windows 11 is going to have significant, uh, significantly higher hardware uh, requirements when Windows 10 was revolutionary in part because it was faster on a lot of older computers than Windows 7. And so uh, I'm going to have an opportunity to, to, I think, test that out in the next couple of weeks. And as soon as, as things are, are, are stable and kosher in my organization, I'm going to repurpose that laptop and see if it'll run Windows 11. But there's an interesting article uh, a week or so back in The Verge. Um, Sean Holster writes that um, you can download now and install with an ISO. So that means uh, burning it or, or copying it to a, 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 a USB drive. You can install Windows 11 on, on basically any machine 
um, that has the minimum specifications, which include things like um, a 64-bit processor. I think it's four gigs of RAM, although I think they recommend eight as a minimum, which honestly, you should be buying eight gigs of of RAM no matter what laptop you're purchasing in 2021. Um, And then I think there are um, some specifications for the screen, but it doesn't check to see if you have that special software suite installed in the BIOS. It's fine to install, but they say that at this point, they're not going to update uh, Windows 11 if you install it on a machine that doesn't have the special security software. I think it's called TPM, if I remember correctly. Uh, that's the, the, the security software system that, that it needs to be running. And, uh, of course, I think this is really ridiculous. And the article we had uh, a couple months back when Windows 11 was first announced had to do with the extraordinary amount of e-waste this is going to create. It is true that people buy PCs less often than they used to because they don't need to upgrade because you can get away with spending a moderate amount on a, a, a middle hardware range PC and it's probably going to last you, including Windows updates, for four, five, six, seven years without needing to be upgraded, unless you're a power user. And this really, you know, uh, relegates a, a huge generation of 2010s-ish Windows machines as as uh, worthless because they won't be getting this latest version of Windows. And you know, they're not going to get rid of Windows, the latest, latest version of Windows. And they'll update that for some time, but at some point they'll stop updating it and, and giving you security patches. So very interesting piece. Um, I know, um, again, if I were in an IT role and had been investing regularly in machines, um, I would be annoyed that, uh, especially if I bought you know, the kind of average school-based machine, you know, four or five years ago that likely doesn't have that special BIOS feature, um, I would be a little miffed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my main thought about that is the return on investment and the longevity of your device. That's hugely important to schools. It's important to families. You know, our daughter is a senior in high school still using like a 10 year old MacBook air that has just, you know, been around for a long time and she's ready for a new laptop. I think we're going to, we'll have to, we'll get her one for college, but you know, um, it's kind of amazing how, <laughs> how long sometimes we do hang on to these computers, you know, schools as well. But from the security standpoint, and of course, from the sales standpoint for, for companies, you know, they're, they're interested in, uh, in seeing that turnover a little bit more often. So, um, I would also just remind people to remember what Jason has said about uh, your, uh, it's not the Chromium. What's the project where you can install the cloud uh, ready cloud ready? Yes. For your old machine. So don't chuck that Intel based processing windows box quite yet. If you would like to have more life because it could become a Chrome device. Yeah. And, you know, and there is a licensing cost available of that and you're in school, but I do think it's worth every dime. And I will tell you, um, I, well, in fact, we've got a really old Windows laptop in our office that, that is literally 11 years old that runs, uh, uh, cloud ready like a charm. And it's, uh, one of our test platforms when we get kids that have low resolution, uh, Chromebook screens, because this is a relatively low resolution, uh, uh, Chromebook screen and it, um, it's cl- it's big and clunky. That's the reason why I wouldn't carry it as a daily driver. But from a speed standpoint, it would easily be a great daily driver. Yeah. And yeah, so good stuff. All right. Well, I could have put many of my articles under just a miscellaneous category. Um, I, we didn't have any other Apple ones, but uh, Apple is going to have a special event coming, which is undoubtedly going to have some new phones in it on September 14th. And I thought it was interesting. I can't believe I wasn't following the official Apple Twitter channel, but you can go to this link that I just dropped in and they will put you on their list to auto tweet you the links to be able to be the live stream. So that will be next week, right before the show. So I'm sure that will be a little bit of uh, Apple love perhaps shared um, next week. Amazing that we're already to the iPhone 14. It seems like just yesterday we were getting the 11. Um, this one is from American Libraries. So I put this under the category of research. But what a fantastic study. What an important article. And what, what this is so important to share. Uh, the title of the article is Stop Source Shaming. Acknowledge Wikipedia in the Resource Process. And it's by Lynn Silpigny Conaway and Joyce Valenza. 
and uh, many of us will know Joyce Valenza from years of, of blogging and advocacy for school libraries and educational technology. Uh, shout out to Peggy George, who actually saw, had shared this article. Um, I have loved doing a small unit on Wikipedia, trying to help students see it at minimum as a launch pad into research and finding out about things. This article cites, you know, COVID-19, um, the explosion of information and the ways in which it's been a hub of emerging research on COVID. Um, it's 20 years old now. Uh, Wikipedia will be 21 in January of 2022. Um, they reference the, OLC, the OCLC's Wikipedia plus libraries better together program that has detailed training on how librarians can teach users to create, edit and evaluate Wikipedia articles. Um, one of my personal like professional goals has been to I'd like to participate in one first, a Wikipedia a thon. So kind of like a hackathon. I learned this summer at the summer Institute in digital literacy that there are folks hosting these. Um, and sometimes they'll be focused on a particular topic, a, a local, you know, kinds of issues, but just, encouraging people to learn about Wikipedia, become Wikipedia authors and creators and, you know, have an event like that. And I just thought that is fantastic. There's so much great media literacy and, and just critical thinking and, you know, digital savvy that, that we can obtain as we look at Wikipedia and how they cite sources, what can be a source um, and the whole process there. So, Yay to Joyce uh, and uh, Lynn and the uh, American Library Magazine for that publication. So how can you speak to how you might address Wikipedia at the Digital Academy? Is there is there any kind of policy on that? Or is that just kind of up to individual instructors on what they it, want to do? It's up to individual instructors. And part of, of our challenge is that um, we actually did recently hire, uh, we, we hired a couple of new staff members uh, in August. And we're very fortunate that, uh, one of those staff members uh, came from, she was a school librarian. She was an English teacher to start off with, and she had actually taught with us for a number of years. And I'm really excited to have a librarian on our staff, in part because I'd like to build up some more kind of core lessons that could be used in any uh, distance learning class that relate to librarian research skills. But, um, you know, I, uh, so uh, as, as as many of you know, um, uh, uh Dr. Fryer and, and, and I both have a debate background, right? We both competed in competitive debate in high school and college. Um, we both coached at one time or another. Uh, I wrote debate handbooks for, in fact, I just, uh, I just closed down my debate handbook shop after 20 years of, 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 and probably, probably a hundred thousand dollars or not a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand pages of briefs, uh, written between me and my partner over that 20 years. It, it's been a, a extraordinary run, but my point here is that, um, uh, you know, we, we are, you know, we get, we, we can even weaponize research, right? Like we are, 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 are research assassins in a lot of ways because we, uh, 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 have this experience, right? There's really no research quite as intensive as debate research. And then we've also got doctorates that also gives us a, a bit of this. And I just can't imagine a world where I couldn't use the Wikipedia to give me good introductory information and then help give me a functional vocabulary for doing deeper research. And um, I'm excited to read this article. I, I perused it while, while you were speaking, and I, and I think it gets to some of these larger points. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, I... I, I do think that 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 Wikipedia shaming is 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 a real problem. Um, it's not as much in academia, I think, as it used to be. In part because I've heard a lot of scholars speak in this exact same way that if they want a relatively informed article to give them the basics and then help them understand enough that they can be functional researchers, the Wikipedia is a great place to start. Yeah. And one of the things one of the things that I think is really super duper important is that, um, you know, I, I have a bit of a disagreement with, uh, I think the, the pedagogy of, um, sending kids out to research things that are well above their understanding level, right? Like the, the notion of, you know, uh, uh, uh kids or, or kids should be scientists, right. And, and do science. 
that and and it, it sounds like I'm being dismissive of what I think is a pretty engaging strategy. But you can't have students do the work of scientists in the way that scientists do it because science scientists are long experienced and, and have a lot of, of of knowledge. And so you have to build building blocks with kids. Scaffolding is what's called traditionally in pedagogy to help students do that. And um, you know, one very quick and dirty way to give yourself some scaffolding before you jump into a topic that you're unfamiliar with is to read a Wikipedia article or Wikipedia articles to give you part of that process. And I think that's not just a good research strategy, it's a good learning strategy. And so, um, you know, I frequently recommend uh, Wikipedia uh, to students that are studying things for the first time. Um, uh, uh, it, it's just a really extraordinary tool. And I'm my heart is warmed by, by that article. And thanks to Peggy George for sharing that with you so uh, you could share it with us. Absolutely. And I did drop one more Apple-related article, uh, which is probably the last one for tonight. Uh, this is pretty interesting. Apple announces first states signed up to adopt driver's licenses and state IDs in Apple Wallet. So Arizona, Connecticut, Georgia, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah are among the first states to bring state IDs and driver's licenses to wallets in uh, for their residents. And so I, I have not done this yet, but I was excited to see my state listed here and you know, my my sister is one that, you know, will will carry a I mean, now that you can pay with with Apple Pay with your watch or your phone, you know, it's just her driver's license, I think, really, that she you know keeps with her phone as well. But to think about giving that up, not having to, to you know, carry that physical driver's license, but being able to have that on your phone. Um, and we've talked on the show maybe last week or the week before. Well. We weren't here last week, but the last time we were on about um, needing to prove your vaccination status, you know, that is um, here to a degree. And evidently it's just going to be coming more. So I don't know. I view that as positive. But of course, that also, you know, makes us, I guess, more beholden to our digital overlords or whatever. Maybe we can be upset about it. But I, th I think it's a good thing. Uh, it certainly makes charging your device and not you know, letting your device run down on a trip when you're when you're flying or at the airport or something like that. I don't know. I think I'll probably still, you know, travel with my with my physical ID as well. But uh, I thought that was a good thing and probably another sign of the times of how we're just continuing to get more and more digitized. Yeah. And it, it's funny, too, from the standpoint, I, I thought the same thing that um, you know, I would be worried about running out of a battery. Right. Or a phone stop working. Um, I'm obsessive about keeping my 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 devices charged. And I always have a battery pack sitting in, you know, whatever daily bag I'm carrying. So for me in particular, it feels like it'd be no big deal. But I mean, I think about the times that I've been, you know, running late for uh, like a connecting flight or something and had my e-ticket on the phone. Yes, of course, you can walk up to the desk and hand them your ID and they'll print you a ticket. But, you know, if you're running late or it's a pain in the butt, you know, and then my phone is on, you know, 3%, I just, I just got to get to the gate. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, it is definitely a sign of the times, but you know, I hope the 48 and 72 hour cell phone battery is not long off. It reminds me of the wonderful Android phone that you had recommended to me that had like some, what, 54, 5,500 yeah. milliamp or something. It was tremendous. So yep. did not keep me in the Android fold for more than nine months, but it was wonderful. It yeah. had that much battery and just not run out. Where would you like to go next, sir? Well, uh, let's do some uh, quick Google articles. So we already covered a uh, cursive. Um, let's um, let's talk about a couple of, of uh, uh, interesting perspectives on, on on Google World. So nine to five, Google reported on September fifth that uh, Germany is pushing the EU to start some new technology regulations that I think are very interesting. Uh, particularly as it relates to to, to uh, mobile manufacturers. And they're pushing iOS and Android phone makers, so Apple and then the many, many Android makers, to, uh, by regulation, have to release seven years of updates per device. And this is interesting from a number of standpoints. First, Apple's pretty close already. When they release iOS 15 um, in, uh, well, I mean, I'm assuming... Uh, to, you know, next Tuesday, right? That's the big event. And usually the, the new version of iOS comes pretty soon after that. And I'm running the beta on my iPad and uh, I've had two new uh, uh, versions of it in the last week, which that tells me they're pretty close to having the so-called gold master, which is the last version before they, they release it publicly. 
Um, and, uh, that on, on an iPhone that goes back to the first generation of the iPhone SE. So that means, I think that's a six year old device. Maybe it's a seven year old device. So that that's, they're, they're well on their way to providing, you know, seven years of updates. Um, Android is not even close and the phones that get all the Android updates for sure are Google made phones. So you may be aware of the pixel phone. That's the brand name of, of Google made phones. And those are guaranteed, uh, two major upgrades and they usually do a third and which, and that's three years of, of updates. And that also depends too on when you bought your phone, right? Because if you bought it new from Google at the end of its cycle, you're only going to get two years of updates, uh, before it, it, it goes away. And that includes security updates because at some point, uh, you know, they no longer push what, what's called Android, Android security updates. Um, and, it goes to the fact that I think there are some real cracks in the Android armor. One of them is which that most of the phones don't get the upgrades they're supposed to. And the ones that do oftentimes it's late and they stop getting them after two or three years. And I just think that there's a broad cognizance that for most users, a phone should be getting security updates more than three years. You're probably going to keep your phone longer than that. And security is such an important issue in 2021 that we absolutely need that, that, uh, um, that, uh, uh, that to be really solid. So, um, and, and Wes, I'm not sure where you're at in, in, in update cycles. Um, I, if they announce a pretty impressive iPhone 13 on Tuesday of next week, it won't be until January. Um, uh, but I, it feels like that, that, you know, um, that could be a big thing for me. But I'm really happy with my three-year-old iPhone XS that is, uh, you know, still getting updates and uh, feels super fast and awesome. We bought new phones for kids graduating from college and other things. And it's like, I want to, I, before I add anything else, I want to just, you know, yeah. The, the swap a route is the, it, just like with cars, we yeah. bought used car. I, I mean, I've. I've only had one new car in my life that I had on a lease and everything else has been used and it's been great. Yep. So I think I am on the used, the used phone bandwagon. Um, it's just, you know, physically just so much smarter to do. Yep. And, um, you know, it's interesting, of course, marketing and consumerism, it pushes, it pushes the kids these days to want a new phone <laughs> every year, you know? Uh, and we've, you know, and, and, and it's easy to say, yeah, sure. Just add that to my bill. But, it all adds up. So I, it is remarkable. I mean, I, I don't know if it was when Rachel started high school. I got the iPhone 11 pro. Um, I kept it for a while and then decided, Hey, this is our third child. She's never had a new one. Well, you know, why don't she, have, why doesn't she have it? And she does. And that phone is still amazing. Uh, the camera and everything. So yeah, it'll, it'll be exciting to see what Apple does, but I'm going to be really surprised if it's not just, you know, some more incremental improvements. Those add up over time. But is that going to, to move me to make a $1,000 investment? Probably not. Yeah. One more quick article from Google World. And then um, actually, we're getting to this hour pretty quick. Um, we did start late, though. So uh, we did. Um, the Chrome Unboxed uh, had a commentary um, on August 25th. Um, Robbie Payne, the founder, and I believe he's the editor of Chrome Unboxed, writes a pretty good argument that I think he's absolutely right about. And the, the opinion is Google needs to fix Android app auto installs when logging into a new Chromebook. And, um, uh, one of the things that when you're someone like me and, and have a lot of Chromebooks and access to a lot of Chromebooks and you're constantly, you know, switching devices, one of the most beautiful things about the Chrome architecture is that when you can when you sign in to your account for the first time, it takes about five six minutes, but with almost no um, uh, 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 no effort on your part, it will reconstitute your Chrome operating system setup uh, exactly as you had it the last time you had been logged into a device. And this has actually happened to me before, where um, I had a, an issue with a hardware platform. I was traveling uh, uh, very briefly, speaking at a conference, and my Chromebook died. Um, well, what I found out later is that it was actually the uh, my uh, charger had died. It wasn't my Chromebook. It was my charger. But I walked into a Staples and bought uh, the cheapest Chromebook I could find at Staples. Um, I 
left the store. I went back to my hotel room. And within 10 minutes, I had everything that I had before my Chromebook um, had, had perished. And it's amazing. It's a really great experience. It also means that, um, you know, uh, uh, if I were to ever lose my Chromebook or have it stolen or whenever I update to a new Chromebook, it takes me seconds really to start the process to then 10 minutes later uh, have my my desktop as I left it. But there is one thing that I've noticed, too, that's really annoying. One of the things that it does is part of the reconstitution process is that it installs all your Android apps that you had installed on your last machine. What I've also figured out, too, is that there's a bug or at least a poor setup in the system. And it will oftentimes install a lot of apps that you had installed before, but you don't like you like you'd uninstalled it uh in one of your one or more of your chromebooks and so it decides to install all of those so as an example of this uh, a couple of weeks ago i had um uh I actually wiped a, a chrome device i was having some issues and wanted to start over so i did what's called power wash it that takes it back to its natural uh, uh first state and it started installing about 40 android apps of which 15 of them were ones that I know I uninstalled at some point, uh, almost all of them are which I had no desire to do on there. And so what Robbie argues is that they should really make it like any other device, that you should get a lot more choice um, uh, on what installs. Uh, for example, it doesn't install web apps at all. Um, uh, which I'm not sure if I'd like that. I like the notion that it might sync over, but on Android, what it does is that it keeps a backup, which it takes regularly and throws in your Google drive. And when you reconstitute that backup on a new phone, it gives you the choice of which apps you want to install that were installed on your last device. And so great, great, great idea. And if you kind of live in Chrome OS world, which I mostly do in my professional and personal life, I think that would be a wonderful change to the Chrome operating system reconstitution process. One of the nice things related that Apple has been doing um, is, you know, if you don't use an app for a for a long time, uh, it just kind of uninstalls and it frees up that memory on your device. Now the icon is still there, but the app itself, if you if you tap it, uh, it has a little cloud underneath it with an arrow. It'll have to download. Um, but you know that's an acknowledgement that many of us, whether it's the Chrome architecture or the smartphone architecture, whatever, um, you know, we try apps, we do things, and we don't actually need all of them. And so I think that article brings up an excellent idea. And I certainly noticed that a lot now with my students when, you know, I log in as like, oh yeah, I better wait here while, you know, I only have maybe five or six, but all those extensions load up. Absolutely. All right. Um, I'd like to share a media literacy article. So this one uh, links to one of my top three favorite sixth grade media literacy units. Um, we started our, Family oral history projects this week. Um, I love that unit. And then um, I really love the what I call the Fruit Loop Conspiracy Theory Unit. And I'll link that uh, here. But this was an article from The Independent. And the article um, cites some research. Uh, this was from September 6, 2021. Racism, Islamophobia, and conspiracy theories among extremist views witnessed in classrooms study finds. And the subtitle says... Nearly nine in 10 teachers say they have heard conspiracy theories being discussed by students. Now, this is a study in England, um, but it is uh, by the uh, University of College, University College London. Um, and it collated views from 96 teachers across schools in England. And, you know, nine in 10 say that they've heard the conspiracy theories, including that Bill Gates, you know, controls people via microchips and COVID vaccines. Um, but it definitely, it calls for, uh, focus on anti-extremism work um, for, you know, students to be, uh, for teachers to have better training, leading to open discussions in the classroom about extremism. And and what what's not in this article is the, are the words media literacy, you know, but web literacy in the unit that I teach on, this is for sixth grade, um, on Fruit Loop conspiracy theories. We study the Apollo moon landings and how many people, you know, will still contend that, you know, we never landed on the moon physically. And of course, one of the videos we look at, the guy's a flat earther and and he's a comedian. And it, it leads to all these great conversations about who we're going to believe 
and, and how we're going to vet information, who we're going to trust, you know, really essential uh, skills for everybody today, not, not just for students. So uh, I like that article. I'm going to pursue the research there a little bit more in terms of, um, you know, maybe even uh, reading that original research. And that could be another venue that I may pursue as, uh, you know, an aspiring returning academic. Are you, do you guys, do you hear anything about those kinds of discussions in, in Montana classrooms or does the media Academy have anything in terms of coursework that addresses conspiracy theories or, or that kind of media literacy conversation, Jason? It's less uh, conspiracy theory focused, but we certainly do spend uh, quite a bit of time um, with helping students understand research processes processes, and also um, uh, uh, a good source quality. But what I would also say is that a lot, a lot um, of, of papers that we get turned in that are either informal or more formal uh, assignments, um, I would say that there's some evidence that students aren't doing a super great job of evaluating their sources before turning it in. And I think that's also true um, uh, uh, at the university level, um, in both talking to colleagues that, that teach in non-education areas, and then my own experience teaching as an adjunct professor at the University of Montana, um, you know, I've noticed that there isn't as much there as there really needs to be in regards to source evaluation. Um, I have a friend that teaches uh, at a private school in Hawaii that's that's taking on um, some more uh, uh, s uh, some more proactive action with younger high school students in history classes to talk about source verification um, and and doing a good job of, of verifying that you know source A or source B is a, a legitimate or valid source to to compare against. And it's hard out there, right? I mean, I think it's a it is very difficult um, in part because uh, like, it, you know, it's it, obviously our students today don't remember what it was like for us in the pre-computer library, right? Uh, the green periodical guides. And, you know, those collections were generally um, uh, uh, thoughtfully curated, right? Like you would go to a library, you know, the, the journal isn't in a library because it's free. It's there because a librarian thoughtfully subscribed and archived that journal there. Books aren't in a library because, you know, they get sent to all libraries. They're there because a librarian made a distinct choice to put that and make it amongst the stacks, right? Um, same is true of, of, of large research universities and that, um, you know, books are thoughtfully placed there, but information's not thoughtfully placed on the internet. There are many thoughtful sources uh, that are available, but just because it tells you what you want to hear or has a convenient opinion or attitude, it doesn't mean it's it's real and 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 or it's it's based in reality. And as I've talked about uh, at least a, a couple dozen times on this podcast, but I, I when I speak at, at uh, about edtech at conferences is you know a Google searching is not a discovery exercise; it's a critical thinking exercise. That you can't just you're not going to find things; you're going to find things and then evaluate them to make sure they're they're providing you more light than they are darkness. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I think, well, we've got about 13 minutes left. So we, even though we're approaching the top of the hour, <clears throat> we started just a, just a little bit late. Um, let's see. How about, <laughs> how about this Facebook article? So um, think, speaking of sources, the well-known Sky News reported on <laughs> September 4th. Who's ever heard of that? Um Facebook apologizes after algorithm puts primates label on video of black men. Social media giant said the incident was clearly an unacceptable error and suspended the entire topic recommendation prompt. Um, these kinds of articles have been common when it comes to facial recognition and AI. Um, the training set, which is used to initially train algorithms is really important. Oftentimes that's not a diverse uh, set of folks and that can lead to some really unfortunate um, outcomes. And I think this also speaks to an issue which, you know, we've talked about before, and that is just ethics and, and thinking about, um, you know, just because it can be done, should it be done? Should it be made? Um, we probably need to be a little bit more Amish with our adoption of technology tools, especially, <laughs> especially when we look at things, you know, anyway, there's just a lot of impacts and unintended consequences that have happened as a result of that. So anyway, that was just, 
if you're into Facebook bashing, you know, there's, there's an article. We probably, probably should be Googling Sky News, <clears throat> checking out their Wikipedia page, seeing where, uh, where they fall because yeah, they're, they're pretty legit, by the way. Okay. So All right. yeah, it's, it's a free to air news channel in Britain. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one other quick one. Um, Twitter. Uh, this is coming from Engadget, so this is one I'm very familiar with. Uh, this is Engadget on September 1st. Twitter opens super follow sub- follower, I guess it's just super follow subscriptions for some creators. So interesting to see, you know, how different platforms are attempting to enable monetization, to encourage creators to come. And I certainly don't find this appealing, but the idea is if you're following someone you're really excited about on Twitter, they could be sharing special tweets that, you know, you're able to have access to uh, if you're a subscriber and if you pay for them. I mean, that's a model we see on YouTube. Uh, we're actually seeing it with podcasts. Uh, My Geek of the Week, the podcast I'm doing, you know, they they encourage Patreon subscriptions. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you get these special, you know, bonus episodes, which I probably should do for this one. I, I really do love this podcast. But anyway, this is an attempt by Twitter to further monetize. Any thoughts about super follow? And Jason, will you be trying to get your account super follow status? So folks can be paying <laughs> for your extra special tweets that maybe you just share on Fridays. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that I will, will, will seek that status. Although I have, I mean, in the past, I mean, I, you know, I, there's no reason for me to be verified, but I would love to get verified on Twitter. Uh, I know the couple of times that they've opened that up and I, you know, I've tried to go in there and get a following and I have a tiny Twitter following compared to, uh, well, certainly uh, my, my partner in crime uh, 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 co-host Dr. Fryer. But um, the bottom line is, is that I, it, it really looks like Twitter is trying hard to continue to stay relevant, but I'm not honestly sure they need to really try that hard. I, I thought Twitter was going to be fleeting, to be honest. It just seemed like there wasn't a way to keep Twitter um, relevant in a world with 140 characters, right? Like one of the, the things I find most difficult and frustrating um, about Twitter is that it's a really terrible place to disagree. It's easy to agree with people. It's easy to make reductionistic arguments on Twitter. It's really hard to have a nuanced disagreement with someone. And the bottom line is, is that, you know, I think professionals, people, smart people can disagree about stuff and it's okay, but it can be a little smarmy there, but I don't think they have to really work that hard to be relevant. Now, that said, uh, there's another call I didn't put in tonight, uh, but I've seen two references to it, so I'm pretty sure this is a thing. Um, they are experimenting with reaction emojis um, on Twitter, which, you know, adding a thumbs up or a heart or that sort of thing. And to be honest, I I mean, it's, it, it, it's just another way to do the heart, right? So it probably, I, I could see it being popular. I could see it sticking around. To be honest, I thought it was kind of funny when Facebook did it. Um, I made a joke when it first happened. I was just going to start reacting to everything with the bizarre angry emoji um, on Twitter just to see what happens, right? Like, we're getting married, angry, angry, or I feel a lot better today, angry, 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 right? But, um, you know, they, they, they do keep trying to evolve. Uh, sometimes their ideas work out, and sometimes they don't. What else would you like to pick up before Geeks of the Week tonight? Yeah, a quick connectivity article. Um, MS Power User reports on August 28th that the, car, the cost of the Starlink terminal um, is probably going to plunge. And right now, Starlink is available in beta-ish status. It, it, it keeps getting a little more formal uh, each and every week. But the idea behind Starlink is that you buy one of these terminals, uh, you, uh, they sell them at a loss already. Um, it, it, it costs Starlink $1,300 to manufacture these, these, these uh, uh, hardware setups. They sell it for $499 right now. And then for about 100 bucks a month, you can get pretty decent internet uh, uh, anywhere in the continental United States, assuming you have the ability to aim the, the satellite dish system appropriately at the satellite array. But um, the uh, president of, of SpaceX, Gwendolyn Shotwell, is, uh, uh, or told a conference recently that the dishes will later this year cause roughly what they currently do. So that's that would be down to $250. And that down the line, we're talking about $125 to get set up for that. And I keep thinking about that. And to be honest, for $125, 
I mean, and you know, like another hundred dollars for the internet for a month. If you were, if you were renting a cabin for two weeks, it'd be worth, you know, that amount of money. If you wanted to have decent internet to be able to serve, you know, to service yourself during that time. Um, it's pretty great. So, uh, cheers to the Starlink people. I really do think they're making a huge difference when it comes to very rural internet access. And I just looked at the MS Power User Twitter account, and five hours ago they tweeted another Starlink article. Starlink currently makes 5,000 dishes a week and plans to boost this by multiples later this year. So, man, I mean, SpaceX and, you know, the the, the way that they've, um, you know, positively, I think, disrupted the space industry and with Internet access like this is just amazing. Um, I won't go into Great detail, but uh, on our Air Force Academy visit, um, I was able to visit with a guardian. Uh, He's actually the colonel who is at the Air Force Academy and part of Space Force that um, facilitates the interviews for the 95 cadets that can commission now directly into the Space Force. And, um, you know, from his perspective, and then there was another actual, he's a a contractor, a civilian uh, that works on the GPS system that I got to visit with. Uh, It really has been a game changer for the military as far as, the, the civilian moved in space and the ways in which, you know, the military can really focus on their defense capabilities and these other, you know, launch capabilities. And, and even just the launch capability, I'll talk about this in the Geek of the Week, but um, government can be very inefficient. There can be a lot of, of mess when it comes to contracting and things like that. And, and SpaceX has done some really positive things. So I'm energized by this and the fact that, <clears throat> you know, if indeed in a year or so or less than a year, we're moving to a new location, um, you know, our possibilities are quite different with the idea that we could have this satellite link up with really robust speed and pretty much be anywhere on the planet, you know, or be mobile. And I don't know that we're going to adopt the nomad lifestyle right away, but my wife was actually said she'd kind of like to do that. And there's folks doing it now. So yay, Starlink. Are your your relatives are on Starlink? Correct? Did they get on? They are not yet. Um, okay. uh, they they're currently still working through the kind of hack together solution I have with them that utilizes um, uh, cell based internet uh, as as a home solution. Um, but I think they'll move at some point. Uh, I do. Uh, I've read a lot of accounts. Um, I have a friend in Northern Idaho that that uses it uh, to some positive effect. Um, but I, 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 especially in, in areas like rural Montana, rural, rural Montana, not hundred thousand people, uh, in a city, rural Montana, like, you know, five people in a city, rural Montana, I think it's going to make a massive difference. And I'm, I'm just so excited about it. You want to pick up one more of those, either hardware, software, or, uh, security ish. Um, yeah, let me cool. do, um, actually this one was really a surprise to me for a kind of a different reason. Um, this is a Verge article from September 1st, and it's talking about um, Logitech is uh, releasing a new style of dongle called a Bolt dong, USB Bolt dongle. And the reason why it is interesting is because it is um, uh, a, a, a lot more secure because of its the encryption it utilizes uh, in wireless communication. And um, one of the things I love about Logitech peripherals is that um, they do have um, a, a, a dongle system you can buy. It's called the Unified Receiver. Uh, you buy the receiver, and uh, you can program the receiver uh, to um, you know to be with any any uh, Logitech uh, a Unified Receiver compatible uh, device that you want. And so uh, you can have up to six devices that are working off that same receiver. And if you lose the receiver, you just buy another one and reprogram. It's really really a great system. Um, and uh, one of the things that happened was that one of those uh, 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 older receiver technologies ended up getting um, uh, 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 hacked and uh, you could update the receiver and they do have firmware updates that you can download. Not a lot of people do though. And it basically meant that someone could hack into and see literally the keystrokes that you're putting in your wireless keyboard. And so uh, that's the reason why um, uh, uh, uh they uh, are releasing an even more encrypted Bolt dongle um, because it is highly secure and intended for highly secure business environments. One interesting thing, and I found this to be extremely interesting, um, and and The Verge calls this decision curious, is that in their new Bolt dongle, uh, it's not USB-C. It's just plain old USB. And what's weird about that is that 
I think you're you you be hard pressed, especially amongst the medium and high end laptops of 2021, to find one that even has a traditional USC port. They're becoming more and more rare over time. Outstanding. Well, we have almost come to 60 minutes of, of clock time, so we've reached it. Um, so let's let's geek of the week it. Um, I'll go first quickly. Um, I dropped in two. The Angry Planet podcast. They have a new episode called Final Frontier or Billionaire's Playground. And what a great summary um, by Christian Davenport, who has written the book Space Barons, not only talking about, you know, the competition between um, uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, as far as, you know, going into space and things, but just the history of the space program. And what I referenced earlier, the really positive constructive role SpaceX has played in bringing less expensive options, reusable rockets. I mean, when you look at the kind of politics that was involved with this SLA, I think is the name of the launch assembly, which really wasn't even to land on the moon. It was just to, to I think, go into high or high earth or, or high orbit. I'm saying those words wrong. Anyway, beyond low earth orbit, fantastic podcast. So I love angry planet and they've just got excellent, excellent, um, interviews and, and programs. And this is a fantastic one. If you're at all interested in space, this is a, a great episode. And then the last one is pretty fun. Um, it is a website by a Chinese developer. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle um, identifies that he's in Beijing. The website is called How I Experience Web Today. And when you link to this, you are just basically clicking through um, but it is so, you know, on point in terms of, of advertising and click through. So it's, you start off with a search for something, then you click on the result, then you see the cookie statement that you have to accept. And then it, you know, says you're going to allow notifications, whatever you click, it's going to go ahead and continue on. Then it offers you the, the newspaper subscription. Then it detects your ad blocker. Then it says that you have to either log in and create an account or buy the article. And then once you click to do that, you don't have to buy the article literally. And you continue reading. It shows you this, um, you know, page with all these ads flashing and what's a, what's a static ad, what's flashing back and forth, a chat box. And so anyway, it's just, it's pretty spot on. Um, in terms of the way in which the modern web has evolved today, my, my fifth graders were, were doing typing.com looking at my screen where I'm running uBlock origin and blocking ads and then looking at theirs going, Oh wow. Didn't realize. And it wasn't inappropriate ads, but it was just lots of advertisements, you know, they were seeing because they didn't have things blocked. So check it out. And I don't know what kinds of action steps we would take as a result of seeing that, but it's a pretty effective way of showing you know, how distracting and pop-up heavy uh, the web reading experience can be today. Awesome. Great. Thanks. And I have a quick one to share. It's an app, actually. If you are an Apple Watch user, um, as I am, Sleep Watch is a really interesting app. Um, one of the reasons why I moved back to iOS World from Android uh, even though I, I'll admit, I miss Android a little bit, um, and there are times when I, I like playing around with Android. Uh, that's that's one of the things you have to do with Android, is play around with it a lot, but I like playing around with tech. But SleepWatch is a, uh, a, a an iOS app that also works on your watch, and I sleep with my watch at night. I like having that data on at night, and I also... Um, have a blood sugar uh, monitor that uh, talks to my watch and to my... Um, um, uh, talks to my watch and, and talks to my phone so I can you know, check it at night and it'll wake me up if my blood sugar is low or high. Um, but what SleepWatch does is that it, it lives inside of the Apple health uh, uh, ecosystem, pulls in from multiple data sources, and kind of helps you sl uh, track sleep over time. And uh, the reason why I mentioned it today is because uh, it, every couple of weeks, it gets a little smarter at my sleep cycles and starts to make suggestions. So last night at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it sent – oh, actually, I'm sorry. Yesterday afternoon, it sent me a notification saying, hey, I've noticed – that you report not being, or that your sleep uh, uh, stats uh, aren't as good on Wednesday nights. Consider being in bed before nine o'clock tonight. 
um, and gives starts giving me very specific recommendations based on all sorts of factors uh, to get better sleep. And um, I'm starting to, I'm finally, uh, well, not finally, I am very much uh, 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 healed from my uh, hip replacement earlier this year. So I'm starting to take longer walks at lunch. In fact, I took my longest walk probably in two years today at lunchtime. It felt great. Um, but it, it also will say things like, I, you know, we notice that your resting heart rate goes down by four points on days where you take 30 minutes of outdoor walking. Or we've noticed that when you eat after 8 p.m., you tend to have a, a less quality sleep. And that those are the sorts of recommendations it gets. And it's um, I'm buying the, the the extended version of it. I think it's costing me $2.99 a month to, to have the extended stats. But it's a really interesting way to track your your, your sleep over time. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, Jason, when you are not here sharing your wealth of knowledge and letting us see the main, which has, you know, grown over the past, what, year and a half, something like that? Uh, yeah. You... February 29th, 2020 was the last time I cut this hair. There you go. Where can folks find you? Hey, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. What about you, sir? And I am W Fryer on Twitter, and you can also go to my slightly updated website, westfryer.com, and especially click the connect link where I will have a ton of channels and, you know, we can cook salmon and smoke briskets together. So you have been listening to the EdTech Situation Room. We are a almost every week tech show podcast talking about tech news, and we continue to share our links on edtechsr.com slash links. But on EdTechSR, you can download small 16-kilobit MP3 versions and approximately 100-meg video versions. But you can always subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, we do apologize for missing last week and then having to shift our show. We'll be back next week, we anticipate, at our regular time after the Tuesday Apple event on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Central. Or Sorry, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. And until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy and stay safe. We hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.